Okay, today's daf is Memchet, Gitin 48. We pick up nine lines from the bottom on Memzayin and Bet, Eisvei, second word in the line. And we are in the middle of the debate of Rabbi Yochanan Lakish, where um, the Mishnah spoke about Bikurim and about when you sell a field to a non-Jew, what that does that do to the status of the fruit regarding Bikurim? And that, um, the Gemara then moved on from that to a debate of Rabbi Yochanan Lakish. If somebody sells a field, Lipeirot, you own the ground not to actually, um, you know, actual title in the land and to make actual changes in the land, um, but you own it for the right of the fruit that grows with it. Is that ownership of the land for the sake of its fruit, is that, would that entitle you to be maybe the Kore? Rabbi Yochanan says you can bring the Bikurim, you have their, your fruit, you can bring them, and you can say, the land is enough yours, at least vis-a-vis, you know, you have enough ownership and title to the land to say, and Reish Lakish says, no, you bring because the fruit are yours, but you cannot say, and the Gemara explains that according to Reish Lakish, the owning of the land for the fruit is not like the actual owning of the land. And now the Gemara is in the middle of bringing proofs for either side. So nine lines from the bottom, I'll ask a question. We have a brighter. A man is going on the way, and is bringing fruit from his wife's property. This is Nichse Milog. He owns the, uh, his wife owns the title, and he has, owns the fruit. So he has the ownership of the land for the sake of the fruit. Exactly our case. Um, and then he heard that his wife died so now before he had a chance to actually deliver the fruit he now uh, has now uh, has taken title of the land because he inherits from his wife maybe the Kore he brings and he recites the verse on the land that you have given me so the Gemara makes the uh, obvious inference, Mesa in lo Mesa lo. It sounds like that he only says this because his wife died, and now he can say Adamashenasatali. But without that, he would not be able to say Adamashenasatali, which proves, like Rish Lakish, that you can, if you have the field for Peros, you can be maybe, but you are Eno Kore. You cannot say it, Kinyan Peros, Lavki, Kinyan Haguf Dami. So the one says, no, no, according to Rabbi Yochanan, I would reject that inference. I would say, even if his wife didn't die, he could say, certainly doesn't sound that way. But there's a chiddish that even when his wife dies, he's still allowed to say. Now, what's the chiddish? He's even more his land. But the chiddish is that now he has a new relationship to the fruit. It's like some status change occurred in the middle. Okay? And even though beforehand he could say, he could maybe now he could say it because there's some status change in the middle, even though the status change should seem relatively trivial in this case since it doesn't affect the Bikurim nevertheless I, that might be a reason to not allow him to say it why? because of because it looks too similar to the case of if the owner harvests the fruit and then sends them through a shaliach and the shaliach dies on the way Maybe the anal kore, and then the um, and then the owner goes ahead and he picks up the fruit. The shaliach died, you know, at a hotel, uh, you know, halfway along the way, and Haifa, and he goes ahead and he. Uh, picks him up the hotel Haifa and continues bringing them to Yerushalayim. In that case, he um, is not able to say uh, the Pasuk. Why? Because 
you shall take and you shall bring it. The taking and the bringing should all be done by one person. And here there was a shaliach in the middle. He, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the owner did the harvesting. If there's a question, it tells us, is that considered the lakicha? Maybe that is. And then the shaliach did part of the bringing, and then the owner finished the bringing. And that interruption there, um, or maybe it's because the shaliach is considered to have done the initial taking out of the house, and that's the lakicha. But the fact that there were two statuses, that is enough to prevent the owner from saying, from doing the kriya. Um, now, and that is a question, how really similar is that to our case? In that case, when the shaliach himself was going to bring it, the shaliach could not say, the halach is a shaliach does not do the kriya. It's not at the end of the day the shaliach's property. So there's a real change in status there, a meaningful change in status vis-a-vis the uh, statement of Adam um, Here, of course, there's nothing like that because according to Rabbi Yochanan, the husband could have said, could have done maybe Vikore even before his wife died. Nevertheless, the Gemara is saying that's how Rabbi Yochan would read this Braita. Of course, he could have brought it before, but after his wife died, you might have think that that makes it like a separate status, and maybe it's too similar to this case, and telling you even so, you know, um, he can go ahead and read it. Um, okay, certainly not worthy evidence with a simple reading of that Braita. Um, okay, Kamash Mulan. Now, this debate of Rabbi Yochan and Shlakish um, follows uh, their debate elsewhere, where, um, where they, um, you know, uh, um, uh, discuss uh, the following. Mark was taught, rather than framing it in the context of selling a field for the payroll, they frame it in the context of selling a field when the yovel is in place. And when the yovel is in place, you know, any field that you sell ultimately will revert back to you when the yovel comes around. So therefore, any ownership that anyone hands, has over it, it's only for a temporary period of time. Okay, now, so is that considered sufficient ownership? That uh, time-bound ownership. If you own a maybe the Kore, you can bring it and say, you cannot say it, it's time-bound, so you don't really have permanent title to the land. Now, the Gemara here ties this to this Kinan Aperus debate, but as it will say in a minute, this seems to be even more than Kinan Aperus. Rabbi Yochanan says, even though you only have rights to the fruit because you don't have total title to the land, so since your title to the land is time-bound, it's like you really only have full ownership over the fruit. Nevertheless, that's considered like full ownership over the land. Kinan Aperus, Kinan Aguf, and you can be maybe the Kore. No, it's only temporary, and therefore you don't really own the land. And even though you own the fruit, that doesn't, it's not as if you own the land, and therefore you cannot be Kore, you cannot say Hadamashrinasatali. Now, clearly, this case should give you a much greater, you know, is a much stronger reason to say that you can say Hadamashrinasatali. I mean, maybe you can't because the idea of Bikurim is the sense of, you know, your ultimate inheritance, um, and, um, and therefore it's the land that is your steachuza. That might be a claim. But the fundamental question of are you considered to be the owner, if you saw, the land was sold to you and it was sold without any qualifications, even though that there is a system that is going to make the land revert, 
but fundamentally now you own the land, um, you know, and uh, you would think that there should be no limitations on what you can do to the land. Um, number one. Number two is even if it was explicitly said, I'm selling you the land for 10 years, it wasn't like some external system kicked in. Still, since it's framed as selling the land, you would think that that's a much stronger reason to say that you're considered like you own the land and can be made viva Kore. So there's a much greater reason why in the case of Yovel, rather than selling it just for the fruit, that one would be inclined to go like Rabbi Yochanan. And the Gemara basically says this. Vitzricha, you need to tell me both cases. If you had just told me in the case of explicitly selling it just for the fruit, but he come in that case, the Rejlaki says, okay, from the very beginning, your whole relationship to the land was just your ownership for the sake of rights to the fruit. But in this case of selling the entire property, it just happens to be that it's in a time when the Yovo takes effect. You, are, you, you, you want to purchase it. Your, your sense is, I'm buying the whole land, right? Uh, it might be that eventually it'll revert, but your relationship to it is to take full possession of the land. So therefore, maybe he would agree to Rabbi Yochanan that that does give you a real sense of ownership and title. If you had just said this case by Yovel, that's where Yochanan says you have a real title for the reason we just said, because you said you were acquiring the land. But when from the very outset you said you're only taking possession of it for the sake of the fruit, I might think he agrees to Reish so therefore it has to tell you that even in that case, so Rabbi Yochanan is so ready to call, consider you to be the owner of the land and say, even if you just owned land for the sake of the fruit. And Rish Lakish has such a high bar that even when the Yovel is noheg, even though you bought the land to own it fully, from the, because the Yovel is noheg, you are not full owner of the land and you cannot say Ha'adamashar Nasatali. Okay. Tzich, Tashma, come in here. Hakone Ilan Vikarkao. Maybe the Kore. If you buy the land, if you buy a tree and the tree and the land underneath it, you can go ahead and say Hadamasha Nasatali. So presumably, right, this is, you know, you're purchasing it. It's not your ancestral land. And presumably we're talking that the Yovel is being no way. I don't know why we're assuming that, uh, since that basically stopped in the first base of Mikdash, but that's at least the initial assumption of the Gemara. And therefore you see that even when the Yovel applies, you could be maybe the Kore. So the Gemara says, no. We're talking that the Yovel no longer applies, which was towards the end of the Bayit Rishon period when you did not have the 12 tribes all on their land. Tashma coming here. If you buy two if you buy two trees without specifying the land underneath, maybe they know Kore. Then you do not you bring but you're not Kore because two trees do not give you the land. But if you buy three trees, the Gemara comments, then as we say elsewhere, when you buy three trees, you know, and they sort of make a triangle, they're presumed to include the land between them. So in that case, maybe the Kore, because you bought the land you can bring. So that doesn't prove anything. Of of course, there are going to be cases in the Mishnah that when you purchase it, you're maybe Vikore because the Mishnah is talking about times when the Yovel does not apply. So it's going to be pretty hard to count, to bring a counterproof. Okay. Um, 
And now says the Gemara, Rav Chiz actually has an interesting teaching. He says that even Rabbi Yochanan, that considers this to be a non-full ownership of the land, would only say it after the first Yovel was practiced in the land of Israel. But in the time of, you know, way back in the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, when the Yovel was, pra- before the first Yovel was, very, very first one was practiced, at that point, everybody would agree that it would be considered to be a Kenyan Haguf. Why is it different? He says, um, Because people, uh, the owner and the, the, the buyer and the seller, aren't really feel so confident about that the land is going to go back. You know, they heard there's this idea in the Torah called Yovel, but it's never been practiced. Who knows if people are going to enforce it? Who knows how it's really going to play out in practice? And therefore, in people's minds, they're thinking that the sale might really wind up to be final. And therefore, interestingly, you know, even though according to on the books, the sale is not final, on the books, the Yovel is going to be put into effect, since their relationship to it is as if it's final, that's enough to give the uh, purchaser a sense of a Kenyan Haguf. Now, it is true that, you know, Rish Lakish's statement that when the Yovel takes place, it's not a Kenyan Haguf, is a pretty high bar. I mean, right, you intended to buy the land, you do own it, it's just that it will revert. So maybe that's why the question of intent is enough to change, you know, perception is enough to change that halacha. Because legally you own it, it's just legally some mechanism is going to come and it's going to make it revert back. Um, and therefore what makes your ownership not complete is not that legally you don't own it fully, but that you know and your relationship to it is different because you know you will not have full rights to it. And therefore when that perception is different, the halakha will change. Otherwise it's quite strange why your perception should change the actual way halakha assesses what is your legal relationship to this land. But you know, it sort of really does prove a principle that I sort of have learned as a head of a, a rabbinical school, which uh, is said by some educators as like, you know, um, culture eats curriculum for lunch, which basically means it doesn't matter what the rules are on the books. What matters is, you know, the culture and what is being messaged implicitly or explicitly in terms of what are the real rules that govern the place. And that much more shapes people's sense of what their responsibilities are and, you know, and what the demands are. So anyway, so that's what um, Rav Chizda says. So now that we've said that even Reish Lakish, before the first Yovel kicked in, would agree that it would be considered to be a king in Haguf because of people's perception, that could be the answer to any any evidence that seems to say maybe the Kore during the Yovel that we would be talking before the Yovel Risha. Okay? So now... Um, um, that when anything that says that during the time of the Ovel or anything that might be talking about the Ovel that says that your maybe the Kari would be before the Ovel. And Meshachach's statement that your maybe the Eno Kari would be before the Ovel Shani. Okay, let's say um, that this debate of Rabbi Yohan Meshachach parallels the debate of Tanaim. Now, it's worth noting that Rabbi Yohan Meshachach only spoke vis-a-vis the Yovel. It is the Gemara that framed it, excuse me, vis-a-vis Bikurim. It is the Gemara that framed it in general terms of Kenyan Paris to Kenyan Haguf. And for all we know, Rabbi Yohan Mishlakish were really talking about a narrow question of the requirements of Mevi Vikore. But because the Gemara has, and, and not something that could be applied elsewhere in halacha in terms of a general question of Kenyan Paris. But because the Gemara is broader framing, it's going to try to connect it to other debates. So let's take a look. Um, 
How do you know somebody who purchases a field from his father and he sanctifies it and then his father dies, okay, before the Yovel kicks in, how do you know that that's like a stay achuza? What does this mean? So if somebody sanctifies a field that they purchased when, during the period of the Yovel, so that's a field that's going back to the owners in the Yovel, so it, becomes, it belongs to the, to the Kwanim, but this person cannot sanctify more than he owns, it belongs to the Beis rather, but, you know, but, but, so therefore, even though the Beis HaMikdash owns it starting as of now, when the Yovel comes, it'll go back to the original owner, because the purchaser cannot sanctify more than he owns. But if the uh, person who owns the land as an inheritance, and the ancestral land, sanctifies it, it's a steachusa, then the Torah says that when the Yovel comes, it goes to the Kohanim, um, and it does... Um, um, it goes to the Kohanim and it does not go back um, to the owner because the owner had full ownership and he sanctified it. That's a steachuza. So here you have the, uh, a story about somebody who purchased a field from his father, a field that he would inherit. He sanctified it before he inherited it. He sanctified it when it was in his hands just as a purchased field, when it was something that would have gone back to his father in the Yovel. And then before the Yovel hit, his father died. And now he has total title to it. And now the Yovel comes along. What's the halacha? Is the halacha, well, since you have total title and you sanctified it, so now thank you very much, the Beis HaMikdash is going to keep it? Or is it, since when you sanctified it, you didn't yet have total title and you didn't, weren't able to sanctify the, the entirety of it, so now the Yovel, the Yovel comes, it goes back to your father, your father is dead, and now you inherit it from your father. So what's the halacha? Um, so the Brisa says, it is like a steachusa. It is treated as if you sanctified it when it was an ancestral land, and it stays with the Beis Hamikdash and with the Kohanim. If you you sanctify a field that you purchased, which was not a field of inheritance, it's a little redundant. Just say if you sanctify a field of inheritance, it stays with the Kohanim and the Beis Hamikdash. If it's a field that you purchased, it goes back to the owner. Why do you have to say if it's a field that you purchased that's not a field of inheritance? So what, what is the reason for that phrase? To tell you that the only time that field goes back to the original owner is if the field not only was a field you purchased, but a field that was not fit or like didn't have the potential and then an actualized potential of becoming your ancestral land. It's completely removed from the category of your ancestral land. Rabbi Shimon, which excludes this case. This case, it was fit to become a steachuza, not just fit, but that actually actualized, right? If you, guy bought it from his father, sanctified it, his father is still alive, it would go back to his father. Because, but here, in this case, this land that was purchased was both a purchased land and it became a steachuza, and it was in that potential category, you know, from the very outset. And in that case, it is going to stay with the Beis HaMikdash, okay? Because ultimately you have title now, and that means that the Beis HaMikdash is entitled to keep it. You are the one that sanctified it. Um, Rabbi, Meir, uh, uh, Rabbi Meir, Omer, Rabbi Meir disagrees. No, no, no. If the father dies, and then you sanctify it, in that case... Um, then, even though when you first got it, it was a purchased field, since by the time you got around to sanctifying it, it had become your ancestral land, in that case, that has a status of steachusa. Um, uh, so, 
if when is it when do you uh, does it go back when at the moment you sanctified it it wasn't an ancestral land to exclude this case where it was already an ancestral land when you sanctified it so Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon say it's enough that it had the potential to be an ancestral land when you sanctified it if in the end that potential is actualized and Rabbi Meir says it has to actually be an ancestral land when you sanctified it in order um, in order for it to not go back now, what is this debate? So you could just say the debate is about how to read the Psukim. But the Gemara wants to, and notice this is not a debate about Bikurim, but the Gemara wants to make this a debate about your relationship to the land. It wants to make this a debate of Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, because clearly you're purchasing this when the Yovel is being practiced. That You have to say that. That's the whole framework here. And therefore, your, the initial purchase, it was only a king and a peros because it would have gone back before the father died. Um, so, Mari says like this. So for Rebbe and Rebbe Shimon, what entitles them to interpret the verse that when it is a stay mikna that's not even the potential of being a stay achuza? Why didn't they need to first learn the Chiddush of Rebbe Meir? That it is a, that, that, you know, that the Pasuk is saying that even though it starts as a stay mikna, if it ends as a stay achuza before you sanctify it, it's the status of a stay achuza. How did they take that for granted and they were able to go immediately to the case of even having the potential of being a stay achuza? My lab So let's see how the Gemara spells this out. This must be what they debate. Uh, um, Rabbi Meir holds that Kina Peres is Kina Guf. So as soon as this guy bought it from his father, it was considered to be like he was the real owner. And therefore, and therefore, he was already considered to be the owner before his father died. And again, this is Kina Peres because it's the time when the Yovel was being practiced. So this guy bought it from his father. If, if we assume that for Rebbe Meir, he's already considered to be the full owner, now his father died, I might think that when the Torah has to assess, is this a stay mikna or stay achuza, the Torah will say, it's a stay mikna, because he was considered to be the full owner. And the fact that now he also became a stay achuza, maybe that doesn't change his status according to the, in this question of what happens when he sanctifies it. Um, so therefore, well, let's take a look. Um, it's like he didn't inherit anything. Now, obviously, it is different because even if he was like the full owner before his father died, now he is the full owner and it's not going to revert. But okay, if he had that status as full owner before, then maybe when his father dies and he, be, and he gets it as an inheritance, that doesn't change his status. And therefore, and therefore, I need a pasuk to tell me that in that case, it's considered a steachusa. Because I could say the steachusa status does not take over the stay mikna status, because even at the stay mikna level, he was considered to be the full owner. Okay? So why does Rebbe Meir need a pasuk for the case of the father dying before you sanctified it? That should certainly be a steachusa. No, he needs a Pasuk because you were already considered the full owner even before the father died. So you need the Pasuk to tell me that now that the father died, it is going to supersede and be considered a Steachuzda. So that shows Kinyi Peres Kinyi Aguf. 
For Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon Sarvi, Kenyan Paris, love Kenyan Aguf Dami. They will hold it's not like Kenyan Aguf. Um, and the Vihilkach, when you, the guy bought it from his father and then the father died, of course that's a Steachuza, because the father died before he sanctified it. First he owned it as, was not considered the owner, only a king of Peros. Then his father died, he inherited it, he was considered the owner. So of course, now that he comes to sanctify it, it is considered to be a Steachuza. So you don't need a Pasuk for that. Why do you need a pasuk? To tell me the case that it was sanctified and then his father died. That case, you would really think that it would be a stain. No. And the pasuk is telling you that no, it's still a stay because it had that potential before he sanctified it and that potential was actified, was actualized. Okay. Okay, so now we've said that maybe that shows you that that's the debate. Okay, How, whether they feel you need the pasuk, you can jump to the more bigger chiddish of even when you sanctified it with the potential, it's considered steachuz if that potential is actualized, that you would be able to jump to that chiddish because the other case would be obvious um, if you said Kenya Paris lav kikinia guf dami. I will tell you that Rebbe Yudah and Rebbe Shimon actually hold Kenyan Aperos is like Kenyan Haguf. Um, and therefore, and even they hold like Rebbe Yochanan. Okay, so if that's true, why were they able to jump to the Chiddush of potential? They found an extra twist in the Pasuk that let them do a double drasha. It could have said, you know, it could have just said The fact that it says that whole extra phrase allows you to learn out one of these halachot. And what the Gemara is now saying is that extra phrase is doubly extra because it could have just said My is that from the field of something that doesn't even have the potential. It's not me stay. It's not even like a derivative. It doesn't even have the potential of being a steachuza. That excludes this, that can be a steachuza. So, even what, to say again, the guy bought it and then um, his father died. So if Kenyan Aperos is Kenyan Haguf, um, you might think that since he, before his father died, he was already considered to be the full owner. It does not, tra- the sta- it does not, it's not now treated as Steachuza. So, so therefore the Pasuk teaches you it is treated as Steachuza. That status supersedes. And now when he sanctifies it, it's Steachuza. Because there's a double language of the Pasuk, me Steachuza to, we do that even one further and say that even if he sanctified it before his father died, and it really wasn't Steachuza at all, it just had the potential, even in that case, it's treated as a Steachuza if that potential actualizes and his father dies. Okay. Phew. Now, um, okay. If it were not that Rabbi Yochanan said he would not find his hands and feet in the base of marriage, meaning he couldn't even get started in learning. Why? Because of another statement of Rabbi Yochanan. Let's say, you know, father dies and two brothers inherit the estate and then they divide it up. You know, you take the field in the north and I'll take the field in the south. Halachically, how do we conceptualize that? Do we conceptualize that like, you know, Reuven directly got the field in the north and Shimon directly got the field in the south? 
Or do we conceptualize that as Reuven and Shimon both got ownership in both fields and therefore each had 50% of each and Reuven swapped his 50% in the south for Shimon's 50% in the north. Okay, that's the other way. So the, the, one of the ways that the Gemara sort of says you can conceptualize this is the question of yesh breira or not. Um, when you divide something up, is it like retroactively? We'll say that's always the way it was meant to be. Maybe you could, you, know, you could you could apply that in many different scenarios. In the case of inheritance, maybe we would specifically say that you know that ultimately how they work it out that makes it as if they directly inherited those parts. Okay, but Rabbi Yochanan says no. We don't look at it that way. We look at it as though you actually each owned half and you sold your other half and so on, and therefore lekuchosein. They're considered to have purchased each other's half from their from the part that they wound up with. So if that's true, so these two brothers inherit, okay, they divide it, one gets a field in the south, one gets a field in the north, and it's when the Yovel is Noheg, so what's going to happen in the Yovel? He says, he says, he says, come the Yovel, they're going to have to put it back into the, you know, the joint property of the estate, and then they're going to have to renegotiate how to split it back out. I mean, one wonders how you can run society that way, right? I mean, it's hard enough when you actually have things that are purchased, but here, in every single inheritance, everything is going to have to ultimately always go reverting back, you know, through multiple generations, no matter how many ways it's been inherited, inherited, and spread out through other generations, comes the Ovel, it all, everything is considered a purchase, it all like reverts back, and then it all sort of like gets redivided, you know, maybe people will make an agreement from the outset that we're not going to do the cheshpan again, and we'll just assume that it gets redivided the way we had it before. But nevertheless, that's his way of conceptualizing it, okay? So, so besides the hard part that now they're going to have to renegotiate how they divide the land, if you were to hold that Kina Paris is not Kina Nagov, especially by Bikurim, Right, this is the case of Ismancha Yovel Noheg. And if you're going to say maybe the Eno Kore, anytime that there's some sense of purchase, so Lomishkachas to Maisi Bikurim, Elachad Barchada, Yosho Binun. Nobody would ever be in Bikurim unless there was a family that was only father, son, father, son, no siblings going all the way back to Yosho Binun. Because as soon as there had been one sibling, the land therefore had been sold and divided, implicitly sold to the other sibling. And then it would have to be, you know, uh, at every, and then would always have to go back to the estate and then redivide it. So the only way something would not be a kinyanaperos, a sale during the yova, would be if there was never an inheritance that got divided, right? So that's obviously absurd. So by the way, Tosas has a hard time because of the bottom line psak. Because in the bottom line psak, you know, it's not clear. Do we pass in Rabbi Yochanan? Do we pass in Rabbi But assuming we pass in Rabbi Yochanan, Kinyan Paris is um, is lav is um, is excuse me. Assuming we pass in Rabbi Shlokish, that Kinyan Paris is lav kikin haguftami. Right, Tosus is bothered that we also seem to proskin that you say ain brera, and therefore, if you're going to say ain brera, you're going to be back to this uh, this problem. So, so Tosus says what's logical, which is that even if in general you hold ain brera, that would not go so far to say that you know. And then when we divided the land, it was like I'll swap you my half in the north for your half in the south. That would not go so far to say that when the Yoba would come, it would all revert. Like, you can't run a society that way. And the way Tosas conceptualizes it is it, that the Torah only says things that really start off as a sale and a purchase revert. Something that is the dividing of a Yerusha, even though conceptually you're swapping your half for the other person's half, that would not be something that would revert. So it would be possible to hold Kin and Paris Lav Kikin and Haguf Dami, and nevertheless, things wouldn't revert. Okay, anyway. Um, Okay, Amarava, Kral Masnisa Mesayeyele Reish Lakish. 
a Pasuk and a Brisa supports Reish Lakish. The Pasuk that's talking about the Yovel says that you figure out the value of the field based on the number of years of produce until the Yovel. Now, even though that's talking about how to assess the fair price, it makes it sound like, you know, is basically more what, you know, the end of the Pasuk is more relevant because it's saying effectively he's just selling you the years of produce. So it frames the sale as effectively about the produce and therefore seems to undercut the sense that you are considered to be the real owner of the field. Masnisa nebraisa, detayim tana nebraisa, bechor noto pishnayim besadah chazeres l'avi biyovel, that a bechor gets to a double portion in a field that would revert to the father in the yovel, meaning father sold the field to somebody else and then the father dies. Okay, so this, the, the, that field is going to come back in the Yovel. When it comes back in the Yovel, does the Bechor get a double portion? What's the question? The principle is that a Bechor gets a double portion in things that are considered to be under the father's control when the father dies, but not that are out of the father's control. So for example, if there's an outstanding loan, when that loan gets paid, okay, the Bechor does not get a double portion if it gets paid after the father dies because it was not under the father's control. So when the father sold land during the Yovel, the fact that we say it is considered under the father's control means that the person who has the ownership of that field until the Yovel, it's only considered a Kenyan Aperos, which is not a Kenyan Aguf. He's not considered the owner. The father, even during this period, is considered the owner. The other person just has rights to the fruit. And since the father is the owner, the Bechor gets the double portion. Okay. Amar Bai said by Nektinan, we take as the halacha, This is also seems to be part of the whole point of Kim Pes is not Kinaguf. If the husband wants to go to court to argue on behalf of his wife, to defend his wife's interest in a field, that he has the Kenyan payros, this is a nechse milog, and his wife has the title, and his wife has the Kenyan aguf. So if he wants to do that, you're not allowed to, you know, you need standing. You're not allowed to go ahead and argue for somebody, uh, represent somebody in court, unless you are the person, or you have a harsha'ah, you basically have a type of a power of attorney, is essentially what the harsha'ah is, okay? So we won't go into the details of that. So Abai says if the husband wants to take somebody to court to defend his wife's ownership of the field, he needs this harsha, which proves that he, the, own, the husband, is not considered to be the owner of the field. But that's only if the court case is limiting itself to issues relating to the title of the field. So for him to be considered to be owner and have the title, he needs this power of attorney. But if the debate is also about the fruit, since he can defend his own interests as far as the fruit is concerned, because he owns the fruit, he is entitled to defend his, his wife's interests as far as the ownership of the land. All right, so that is, again, a proof that the general principle is that is the end of that parak. We now continue the next parak, which continues with issues relating to tikkun olam. Hanizakin, shaman lahen beidis. So um, when you assess um, somebody has damage done to them, a tort, like you know, babakama. Um, somebody, you know, uh, uh, the cows went in and grazed in his field or something of that nature. A fire went and burned it down, etc. So he collects from the uh, from the uh, from the person who owned the you know cow or the set the fire. And if the person um, 
you know, the person can either pay him in cash um, or metaltalin, or if he collects from land, um, then he would collect from, um, um, what do you call it? Then he would collect from the best of the person's fields. If the person is, there's grade A land, grade B and grade C. Grade A is called idis, the best. Grade B is called benonis, and grade C is ziboris, the worst. You know, are these uh, relative or objective? We'll see some of that when we get to the Gemara. And the halacha here is, though, he gets from the top quality land if he is coming to collect from land. Okay? So, uh, so, but, so all of this is going to be because of tikkun olam. And as Rasi points out, people would much rather collect high-quality land, you know, which is much easier to sell than, a, than an equal dollar value of low-quality land, which must be much harder to sell. Okay, so therefore, he's able to get one acre of top-quality land rather than 10 acres of middle or low-quality land. Um, when somebody has a is, a is a debtor and comes to collect, so again, if you're not going to pay him off in cash, um, then he can, um, or in chattel, and he's going to collect from land, so he get, collects from middle quality land. Uh, um, and that's also if he is collecting, you know, from the um, land that has been sold to third parties. Um, and the ksuva of a wife, a man dies and his wife is now coming to collect the ksuva amount and she's got a lien on the property. She collects from the less, least quality, from quality C. Even the ksuva is this B quality. Okay, any framing, and we'll see about this in the boris. One cannot collect from property that has a lien on it when there is property that is unencumbered, even if um, they are of lesser quality. So let's say you have the case of the debtor, um, and he goes and he comes to Reuven, um, who lent him the money. Now Reuven only has left in his ownership C quality land, Zeboris, but Reuven sold some of his B stuff to um, you know Shimon and Levi and Yehuda. The debtor can't say, well, look, as a debtor, I'm entitled to B-quality land. I'm going to go to Shimon Levi Huda and exercise my liens. So the halacha is you're not allowed to do that, right? That's not fair to Shimon and Levi Huda, even though you have liens and you can collect from that property that Reuven sold them. If Reuven can't pay up, that's only once Reuven can't pay up. And if Reuven has property in his own possession, that's called unencumbered, b'nei chorin, then you cannot go ahead and exercise your liens against uh, these other people, against the nechassim mishupadah. Okay? So, um, and you have to therefore accept the quality sea land. Now, when somebody is, uh, let's say, Reuven owed, owed me money and Reuven died, and now I'm going to collect from his heirs. So his heirs, to some degree, are it's similar to a case of a loan, and now they're other owners, they're new owners of that property. I have liens on that property, so I really should be entitled to collect quality B, Bainonis, but it's saying, no, I'm going to have to get quality C, Ziboris, from the heirs. And all of this is because of Tikkun Olam. Now we're going to a point of not um, of um, uh, quality, but of the right to exercise liens. So um, somebody goes ahead and sells me land, and I and it's, he does it with achrayas, which means that if somehow you know it turns out that he did not ha- he thought he had a title to it, or maybe he was lying. Who knows? It winds up that the land wasn't his. Somebody else is, t- is you know it's recognized that somebody else had the title, and the land has to go to another person, and they, they come and they take my land away from me, and that's something that could happen. And I knew that that was something that could happen, so I protected myself. I bought insurance. 
which is called Achrayas. Okay? So now I went ahead and I bought this land and I invested $10,000 in planting and sowing and whatever. And now I have this gorgeous garden. Okay? And it's now worth $20,000 more. And comes along somebody and has just proven in court that the guy who sold it to me didn't really own it. And he seizes his, this property. Okay? With all of my wonderful improvements and my beautiful garden and so on. All right? So... What this guy has to do, the guy who seized it, um, he has to pay me back for my $10,000 of labor and investment, okay? But now he, oh, because like, it's as like he hired me as a hired laborer um, retroactively. But now he takes the land with its gorgeous garden that's now worth $20,000 more. Where do I get my compensation for the $10,000 that I you know, did not get reimbursed for the improvement of the land, plus the actual amount that I spent on the land itself. Well, remember, I bought insurance. I have a chryas. So I can go back to the guy who sold it to me, Ruvain, and he get him to pay me back for the base purchase price of the land. But what about the improvement that I didn't get reimbursed for? Okay, that extra 10000 So that is called... The way I, you know, the, the fruit and the way I improved the land and so on. So yes, I can go to Ruvain. He did give me insurance, but I cannot, but here's what it plays out. For the base price of the land, if Ruvain doesn't have any property on him, I can go ahead and get property that Ruvain sold. I have liens against Ruvain's property to collect for, you know, for this loss. That's the insurance gave me those liens, okay? And that can be for the base amount. But I cannot go to people Ruvain sold his property to to collect for the, uh, you know, my lost improvements on the land, Achilles Peros and Shevach Karkos, that I can only collect from Ruvain directly. And you might be able to figure out the reason because purchasers of Ruvain's lands don't know how to protect themselves. The amount that Peros and Shevach Karkos will be is indeterminate. So that amount, even if I have insurance, I can only collect from Ruvain directly. Similarly, one of the things that a wife is entitled to do is when a husband dies, um, her widow, uh, this is in the Ksuva, and, her, and the daughters can continue to be supported by the estate. So, um, for, you know, so the state has to pay for their upkeep. So can the widow and daughters get property that was sold by the estate that, you know, that, that they have basically exercised liens in order for their support? And the answer is no. It has to be property held by the estate directly, not property that the estate sold. Again, that would not be fair to the purchasers um, because it's not determined how much that's going to be. Something... Uh, a little bit different. If somebody finds a wallet and returns it to someone and the person says, what do you mean? There was $100 in this wallet. The guy says, no, I only found $50 in it. He says, take an oath that there was only $50 and not 100 So he does not have to take an oath because then you are not, that's a tikkun alam that we exempt him from taking an oath or otherwise you do not get people returning the wallets. Okay, let's take a look at the Gemara. Okay, we start with the idea that when somebody is damaged, they collect pro- quality A property because of tikkun olam, idis, if they're collecting from actual real estate. Mimei tikkun olam, says the Gemara, because of tikkun olam, it's, a, it's from the Torah. That it says that when somebody sends out his animal and it consumes in another field, he should pay the best of his field and the best of his vineyard, which we're assuming to mean the best of the field, the highest quality field and vineyard of the person who is responsible for the damage, okay? And we're assuming that that's not just true about what's called shane and regel, you know, those like when the animal uh, eats and walks, but it's about all cases of nizikin. So it's all learned out from a pasuk 
Amar Abai said Abai, Lo, Tzricha El Rebbe Shmael. The reason that it's Tikkun Olam is according to Rebbe Shmael. Amar Mi Doraisa B'Denizak Shaiminan. Rebbe Shmael says that the, when it says the best of his fields, it means the best of the fields of the damagee, not the damager. So if, let's say, the person being damaged, his subjective highest quality field was really, you know, let's give them a score, was really, um, you know, 80 on a scale from 1 to 100. And the damagers' highest quality fields were, you know, were in the 90 to 100 range. So, so when the, if the, the, when the damagee comes to collect from the fields of the damager, the damager does not have to give him his A quality, the 90 to 100 group. He can give him from his B quality, the 80 group, because that is parallel to the best quality land that the damagee has. Okay? So you collect from the best quality. That, how do you define best? Based on me, the damagee's best. So what for me is the best of my quality of the fields that I own, I can collect from comparable quality from the damager's field, even if they are not the best of his fields. Okay, that's B'denizek Shaiminan. So that would be the Torah Halacha, and therefore the rabbis switch it to say B'demazik Shaiminan, that I actually get to collect from the best quality of the damager's field, because you want to make even a more of an incentive for people to be careful to not let their animals go out and damage, you know, to be an incentive against negligence. Okay? Titania. Okay, now. My Rebbe Shmael, what is the Rebbe Shmael's position? Where do we see it? The time is on the Brisa. Metav Sadeo, Metav Kamar Yishalem. Metav Sadeo Shel Nizak, Metav Kamar Shel Nizak, Diver Rebbe Shmael. Rebbe Shmael says, the best of the fields of the damagee. Rabbi Akiva, Omer, Rabbi Akiva says, Lo of Yidis. No, the Torah is coming to tell you that when you are coming to collect for damages, you have the right to collect you know, the va- you can't exceed the value of the damage, but in terms of which property you collect from, you have the right to collect from the highest quality proper, ta- highest, qu- highest uh, quality property. The Kavachomer Hektish, and certainly by Hektish, we'll worry about what that means in a minute. Okay, so now we already know where the Gemara is going to end up, that Rebbe Ishmael is going to say it's the highest quality as defined by what is subjectively the highest for the Nizak, for the damagee. Okay, but right now that's not what the price sounds like. Right now the price sounds like that if my animal damages a field, let's say an acre of, of, of Reuven's field, I have to pay back for, even if it was Reuven's quality sea land, I have to pay back for the best fields of Ruvain. If Ruvain has A, B, and C quality, and my animal goes and eats an acre in C, I have to pay him back as if he ate an acre in A. Okay, that's what it sounds like from Rabbi Ishmael. Metav Sadeu of the Nizak. That, that's that you're actually paying back as if he ate the best of the damages fields. All right, so it's not what property you collect from, but actually like, like how much you're paying. Um, Okay, so, does this make sense according to Rebbe Shmuel? When he ate from the fat land, the good land A, he pays back an acre of A. And if he ate from land C, he's going to pay back an acre of A? Like, that's not just, that doesn't make sense. Okay, although that sounds like what Rebbe Shmuel is saying, we can't accept that. No, no, no. What happened was that it went, the animal went and it ate a row of grapes. Okay? So let's say, you know, we don't know. I had like prize grapes, you know, some of my grapes were prize grapes that were worth, 
you know, uh, $10,000 a row, and some were worth $1,000 a row. And, it's, uh, you know, and I would know it if I looked at it, but now that the animal ate from it, I don't know whether he ate from the $10,000 grapes or the $1,000 grapes. In that case, it's telling you, you pay for the best. So we're still thinking that Rabbi Shmuel is saying you pay as if he ate the best, but in a case where there's a level of doubt, okay? So, um... Uh, in that case, you pay from the best. I'm a rava. That doesn't make sense because we won't allow a reader of this pasuk to violate general principles we have in monetary matters. And we know that if if the halacha was that if we knew that he ate the worst, the thousand dollar grapes, he would pay a thousand. If that's true, then now that we don't know if it was the thousand dollar grapes or the ten thousand dollar grapes, how can you suggest that because of this pasuk he's going to pay the higher amount? That violates general legal principles we have. The general legal principle is, is that if we don't know how much I owe you, whether it was a thousand or ten thousand, you have the burden of proof. So we have Rabbi Ishmael's statement that sounds like Rabbi Akiva says clearly what the Pasuk means is, you know, the amount, you figure out the amount that's owed, and then the question is what property you collect from. So the Torah is telling you you co- collect from the best property of the Mazik. Rabbi Ishmael sounds like he's saying, how much do you pay? As if he ate the best. But the Gemara rejects this. That would be unjust to make you pay more and it would e- than was damaged, and would even be unjust to make you pay, in a case of doubt, more than could be proven. So what the Gemara is going to wind up saying is that, um, that uh, and we'll get to this tomorrow, is that Rabbi Shmuel says, like we said earlier, that no, Rabbi Shmuel agrees that the amount you pay is the amount that was damaged, but rather than collecting from the top quality of the, of the damager, the da- you collect from what the damager owns that's comparable to the top quality of the damagee. Okay, even though that is the middle quality of the damager. That's going to be Rabbi Shmuel's position, and therefore the Tikkun Olam is to allow you to actually go and be Rabbi Akiva's position and to collect from the top quality, the idis of the damager.